Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Cave the Cross Apologetics. I am Patrick. And I'm Tony. And uh, we're on the last portion of our uh, book for Faith Has Its Reasons for the Classical Approach before we move on to our next um, methodological approach. And so here uh, we've, we've, we've um, summarized the meta-apologetics of the, the classical apologist. We've talked about the six um, different approaches that they have there. Uh, also six questions that all apologists have to answer and uh, summarized uh, uh, what, what the classical approach offers in terms of that. We've also talked about uh, the uh, strengths that our authors have said uh, tend to be the ones that uh, classical apologists uh, focus on. And lo and behold, a reason comes out uh, as, as being a, a, a positive uh, for them, which uh, I don't think we would disagree with. Uh, and, and so uh, now we turn over a new leaf and talk about the weaknesses. Well, it can't be a weakness because this is the one that everyone holds to. Everyone knows the Kalam and free will defense. There's really nothing else to do after this. But well, actually, what, what you find, Patrick, when you turn over a leaf is that there are usually bugs <laughs> underneath there, right? <laughs> Although we, we do enjoy maybe a little bit more than bugs, our classical apologetic <laughs> brothers. <laughs> but uh, so for this episode, we are talking about the potential weaknesses of, of, our, uh, of our classical apologetic uh, brothers. And so uh, it says uh, some of the potential weaknesses here. So during the past two centuries, the classical approach has come under increasing fire, both from outside the church and from within. As the near consensus of Christian worldview has been eroded and broken down by the onslaught of secularism and humanism in the West, many Christians have concluded that the classical approach has some significant problems or at least limitations. Right. And so the first thing they want us to do is uh, to see that there are some uh, common criticisms of this approach that are based on um, clear and outright misunderstanding. So these are false criticisms of the approach that they want us to see first. These are criticisms criticisms that re they suggest don't even work, right? So classical apologists, for instance, do not claim that one must believe in God or in Christ on the basis of rational arguments to be justified in believing or to have a proper faith. What they maintain is that for such belief to be rational, there must be uh, somewhere a rational ground of that belief in truth. Even if the believer may not be aware of that grounding or be able to articulate it, right? Mm -hmm. So notice the idea here is that uh, you don't have to uh, believe, or you know, in God or in Christ uh, on the basis of rational arguments, right? There are believers that that believe that don't know any arguments or don't know any good arguments, but that doesn't mean that they can't have belief in Christ, right? And so the the claim that classicalists say you have to believe based on rational arguments is a is a misnomer. It misses what they're attempting to say, right? It's a misunderstanding right. of the approach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Plantica's uh, warrant of Christian belief is one, and that uh, even Craig uh, holds highly in regard uh, as as far as here. And again, Craig uh, talks about the, the the knowing and the showing difference uh, as as. Uh, as being a Christian, as you can you can know that you're a Christian, but to show you're a Christian, he would point to rationality as as being the the, the prime uh, mover of people. Well, likewise, classical apologetics does not substitute reason for faith. We're just automatons of reason. We we write down our uh, premise one, premise two. 
then a conclusion and whatever happens uh, in in there that that's that, that's the only wiggle room for faith is is uh, moving <laughs> to your conclusion well classical apologists regard some of the belief as essential to sound faith to be demonstrated by reason but faith itself includes beliefs that cannot be demonstrated and again what what is what is the the main uh, uh definition of faith it's it's trust and uh to to to, you know, when we do our, our terrible trust falls uh, that uh, you don't trust uh, people at your job site, uh, but you still have to do it because HR is telling you to, um, you know, you're, 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 you're trusting the people behind you to have your back. And so uh, that, that's what the, the, the purpose uh, allegedly of that demonstration is for. And so when, when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and life, no man can come to the father except through me. Well, the, the trust is in the coming to the Father through Him. That what 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 titration, what uh, what scratch test, what uh, what malleable property can we can we uh, put on that? How how can we demonstrate that through a law of non contradictions? Uh, unless if Jesus said uh, you can you can go anywhere you you want, just not through me. That would be uh, a contradiction in terms. But no, it, we have to trust uh, that uh, that. Jesus is the way that he will be faithful, that he, uh, that he will be trustworthy uh, in, in that uh, demonstration of his power. And he's evidenced us that by his resurrection and, and, and everything that's happened from there. Well, moreover, faith is more than an assent of the mind to beliefs. It is a response of the will of, to God. And this is something that reason cannot produce. Right, right. And so the classical apologist says faith is more than just this rational kind of belief. There's a volitional aspect of it, a, a response of the will to God. And so when we say that, well, the classical apologist is saying that, you know, you, it's it's only this rational thing. No, it's more than that. And they they understand that it's more than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, uh, if, if you look at um, a, a people who uh, mapped the human genome, you had people that from that, those groups that went from uh, completely atheist to at least theistic and saying, listen, all I did was put A, B's and, and C's and a few E's in, 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 this, in this lineup. And all of a sudden I have a belief system here that is unattainable by me anymore. And that's of no designer. And so I, I see design in this. Now, did that person sit down and, you know, write out their premise and, and conclusion? Well, no, it seems to be an experiential form of 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 the work that uh, they produced in order to get them to that belief. And you do have Christians who have come out of, of that as well. But uh, I'm talking just in particular here of, of a single person. Yeah, good. And so our authors tell us that while such misplaced criticism should definitely be set aside, we should give careful consideration to other concerns that uh, critics have voiced about the classical approach. And so they want to highlight for us three of these concerns uh, with regard to the classical approach. So let's kind of jump in here and work our way through these. So the first one they tell us is that classical apologists overestimates the adequacy of reason as a criterion for truth. And uh, so they suggest as valuable as reason or logic is in apologetics, many Christian apologists, they express reservations about the primacy and comprehensive use of reason, and in particular, deductive logic and classical apologetics. And so uh, with regard to this, they say that we can distinguish 
three concerns under this general uh, heading of the overestimation of uh, the adequacy of reason. Right. So first, uh, lo logic, though uh, universally necessary, is universally insufficient as a criterion for truth. This is because, at best, deductive logic can only test the falsity of a worldview and cannot actually determine that a worldview is true. So you can falsify it, but once you falsified it, is it is is yours true? Well, yeah, not not necessarily the case. Well, this is because a deductive argument, even if formally correct or valid, is assured of arriving at true conclusions only if the premise is true. So you have um, uh, it, if it rains, uh, the, the the sidewalk is wet. Uh, the sidewalk is wet, therefore it must have rained. Well, unless the, the sprinklers turned on. So right. you have to go back and, and, and talk about your promise if, if that's true, if there's other explanations in there. Now, what uh, uh, deductively let out is, is true, right? If it falls from the, the premises, but uh, it's not the only explanation. So we, we have to go back to the premise. And so that's what people have sometimes a hard, hard time with is you're always having to talk about um, the, the premise being true. And in fact, in debates, uh, William Lane Craig said, um, you know, if you grant me the premises as true, then this has to follow. Now we can talk about the premises not being true, but you have to say from this criteria that the conclusion must be true from these premises. And so, right. that, and so that's one I, of the I reasons. think that the illustration there is if it rains and the sidewalk is wet, it rained, therefore the sidewalk is wet. So that's modus ponens. Oh, there you go. And it's right. It's, it's, um, and so that that is a valid deductive structure. The question is the question with regard to the truthfulness of the premises. And probably a better illustration, I think they well, they don't use this one, but here's here's one that, you know, if you've studied any logic, the kind of simple type of uh, way to show this is all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. So the issue here is, if indeed all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, then <laughs> of necessity, Socrates must be mortal. But the problem that I think our authors are trying to show here is the issue of, even though that may be a deductively valid argument, how do we uh, you know, show the truthfulness of the premises? How do we know that all men are mortal? Have we seen all men past, right. present, and future, you know, and, and uh, somehow uh, observe that? So, you know, how do we determine the truthfulness of the premises is the issue, I think, that they're getting at here. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, then uh, logic itself isn't necessarily sufficient, uh, sufficient criterion of, uh, of truth, I think is, is what they're saying. Right. right. Notice, this is a kind of a, a, a criticism of deductive logic right uh you know so, sometimes we make this distinction between well we, there's a distinction between deductive logic and inductive logic mm -hmm. and people say well i'd rather have deductive logic because it's you know it's necessity it confirms the tr it gives us truth mm -hmm. while induction is just probability right. the problem is usually uh with regard to deductive logic in order to uh, show that the premises are true, many times we have to give an inductive argument, right? We have to show, well, all men that we've seen so far 
are mortal, mm-hmm. right? And so probably all men are mortal, <laughs> right? right? And so now that induction is based on a probability argument for one of the premises. And so if that's the case, then we don't have this, you know, this absolute necessity that we want from a uh, deductive argument. And so I think that's part of the criticism here that mm-hmm. they're getting at. It, it results in, at least to a certain degree, some type of probability argument. Right. We all know that Socrates was actually a robot sent from the future, so therefore he's not a man, and therefore we know that's not true. Yeah, so that's a criticism <laughs> of the second premise, right? So you can get all of these, yeah. <laughs> so, you can get both of them. So ultimately, the premise of an apologetic argument must consist of facts derived from some source other than logical analysis, and that seems to go against what our classical apologist uh, um, proponents uh, want to, want to uh, validate. Right. And so, you know, they do say that uh, classical apologists during the past couple centuries have recognized that, uh, you know, apologetic arguments cannot produce on the basis of reason alone, uh, you know, accomplish what they want. And uh, once it's recognized that reason does not uh, suffice as a criterion of truth, one must then decide what criteria will be used in the apologetic argument. And they point out that this raises the second difficulty for the classical approaches attempt to find universal sufficient criteria for determining truth. There appear to be no universal accepted criteria of truth that can be applied without already assuming the truth of, notice, a particular worldview, right? (laughs) So the worldview establishes, they're suggesting, the criteria. And so once you get outside of that, then, of course, uh, you know, naked logic, we might say, doesn't seem to work for them. That's the issue here that they want to want us to see. I wonder if there's any other worldview or any other apologetic methods that that talk about that. <laughs> well, we'll see, right? We'll see. Yeah, give us absolutely. We're, yeah. we're only on the first one. You know, that's right. It, it's a it's a uh, was it Wink Martindale? You know, you, you got to learn all your 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 choices before you you um, press your luck there. <laughs> All right, well, third, the emphasis on logical analysis has come under fire for presuming that human reasoning is capable of recognizing truth about God. Apologists and theologians outside the classical tradition often complain that classical apologetics assumes that God and his relation to the world are susceptible to logical analysis and descriptions by finite minds. This assumption appears to fly in the face of God's infinitude and transcendence. So how how dare you say that you're able, with your puny mind, to know the mind of God? Right, yeah. And moreover, they tell us, even if it's possible for Christians to perceive the logical coherence of their beliefs about God, it does not follow that non-Christians will be able to perceive that coherence, right? The classical approach, they tell us, assumes that the application of logical categories to God is a neutral, objective manner on which Christians and non-Christians can agree. Now, obviously, apologists <laughs> outside the classical uh, tradition question this assumption, right? right. Uh, there is, they insist, no epistemological neutrality. And, of course, we'll see that with a vengeance when we get further <laughs> on down the road, right, right. Uh, and looking at some of these others, right? So. Right. Is there neutrality and can we, you know, come to God based on a neutral basis of logic or whatever? And perhaps not. And so that's kind of the issue here that's being raised. 
Right, right. And again, the emphasis on reason, and we, we can't approach our, our Bible yet because we haven't gone through our apologetic method, and then we do our apologists and then our theology. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's a little bit hard-pressed to, uh, to, to, to point to a, a revelatory source here because for, for classical apologists, reason is, is going to be the, the, the key uh, mover here. All right, and then our authors move on to uh, uh, depends on theistic arguments of debated validity and value. The theistic arguments of, new, uh, of natural theology have inherent limitations that make them a dubious foundation for, apologi for apologetics in the eyes of many Christian thinkers. First, the opinion of many apologists, uh, Christian apologists, there are reasons to question whether the traditional theistic proofs are sound. Yeah, so do these traditional theistic proofs work? Are they sound, right? Are they, do they accomplish what the classicalists suggest that they do? Right. Uh, so they quote Mark Hanna here, and he speaks for many um, when he writes this. Beginning with a mere concept of God, so this would be the ontological argument, one cannot validly infer the extra conceptual or actual existence of God. Right? So that's a criticism of the ontological argument. The next is a criticism of the cosmological argument. Beginning with a finite world, one cannot deductively arrive at an infinite God. So in spite of the great ingenuity uh, you know, expended in attempts to frame a sound theistic argument, none has escaped the charge of smuggling in question-begging assumptions. So this is a quote from Mark Hanna, right? So the claim here is that none of the theistic arguments is sound, uh, is perhaps uh, our authors tell us the most critical objection to classical arguments. If the truth of theism cannot be established as a philosophical starting point, right? The cosmological argument, the teleological argument, that sort of thing, uh, for presenting the evidences uh, for Christianity, then the classical model is clearly fundamentally flawed, right? Yeah. So that, that seems to be a problem here. Uh, uh, not everyone accepts these arguments as, uh, you know, as a way to show that God exists. Yeah. Big, big claim there. <laughs> A second limitation is that even if they are sound, the theistic arguments are often exceedingly complicated and beyond the grasp of most people. So, you know, you talk about prime mover <laughs> and, and uh, logical necessities and uh, you start using Latin terms and a priori. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, you know, <laughs> yeah. Hold on. Hold I just want to know if God existed. Yeah. 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 Just, just give it to me simple. The, the, you know, it, I shouldn't have to do all this hard thinking for, for the idea of that God exists. <laughs> well, third, even if the arguments are sound, and it has been pointed out that they do not lead to a personal God of Christian theism. Again, that's where the two-step approach comes into, but that's also the flaw of the two-step is, okay, uh, you know, you've, you've, uh, you've, you've found a pattern of, of communication in the DNA structure. Uh, we're able to uh, codify it and label it and uh, uh, manipulate it. And so it looks like it points to a designer. Which one? Uh, and and uh, is he still around? Uh, are we sure he's revealed himself, or is this, or is this just it? Is this is this panspermia of 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 uh, of a of a uh, small g god, or is this uh, you know is is this uh, one of the thousands that uh, Hindus have come up with, or is this one of the millions that uh, the Mormons believe? So uh, we 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 don't quite know that yet. 
Right. And of course, you know, the, the classicists would say, well, we have two steps and now we have to show the Christian God. But still, the first step doesn't get us where we want it to get us, right? Uh, you know, uh, a prime mover or a first cause. Well, what does that have to do with the personal God? You have to go more than that. And so the issue here is just these uh, these arguments. That's what our authors are trying to say. They don't do the work. Uh, that uh, it seems like the classical apologist uh, wants them to do or believe that they do. All right, and then the last kind of criticism here uh, that they level is uh, that um, the classical approach uh, does not address the personal dimension of knowledge and belief. They tell us that classical apologists are concerned as a practical matter to persuade non-Christians to believe in Christ as it as this evidence in their emphasis on finding common ground with unbelievers. But on the other hand, common ground for classical apologists is typically understood as rational or intellectual, right? That's the common ground. We have uh, common rational facility, uh, faculties rather, or intellectual faculties, or reason is the common ground. And so this focus, focus, they tell us, is widely perceived as a weakness in the classical approach because it overlooks the personal, non-rational factors that contribute to a person's uh, knowledge and belief. Commitment to ultimate philosophical perspectives, they tell us, is not merely intellectual. It is also influenced by our feelings, our emotions, and uh, you know the decisions of our will, volitional factors. And so it's more than just you know the head is what uh, they're suggesting here. And so the, the the criticism here is that the classical approach does not address the personal dimensions of knowledge and belief uh, with this focus on the rational and the intellectual. Mm-hmm. Uh, Len Nimoy titled one of his first books that he wrote, I am not Spock, but he could have titled it, We Are All Not Spock. Uh, <laughs> even even those of us who, who really like Spock, uh, we, we can't break free from our, our, our emotional and volitional factors here. And so, uh, you know, no matter how, how hard we try to always be rational, sometimes there's, there's that one, there's one, that one news story that just, uh, gets you up hot under the collar and, and you start ranting and raving or, or you see the, 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 your favorite sports ball team, uh, win or lose. And, you know, you don't take a, a, a rational, uh, look at it and, uh, <laughs> th- throw it through modus ponum and, and, and come out the other side and go, why, well, yes, the, the, the Lions, of course, are uh, inevitably going to lose every single game for the next uh, thousand years. Uh, it, it's inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should re- repeat the points that the potential weaknesses in the classical approach are not criticisms of all classical apologists, our authors say. And that is true because, uh, you know, the, the, uh, we, we talked about even uh, when we looked at the people and even Norman Geisler, who uh, kind of uh, um, is, is, is the epitome of all classical apologists, according to our authors, um, pr- probably doesn't hold to every single point perfectly. And so um, uh, there are people that still identify with classical apologists, but may not hold to every single criticism here. Most of the accomplished apologists in this tradition uh, nuance their approach to overcome or at least ameliorate some of all or all of these difficulties. Um, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, that, that, that's a hard thing to do. And sometimes, uh, people in the camp want to kick you out of the camp and then no one else will take you. So you create your own thing or you, you know, you call it, uh, it's, it's, you just call it new, uh, it, it's the, and uh, any, you know, the, 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 the new, new version of Calvinism is the new version <laughs> of classical apologists. And so, um, 
I will say here too that our authors have have listed these things as our negatives, and so we might also, uh, as as you've probably come to realize, uh, um, kind of view all, also our negatives uh, in here as well. Uh, I, I think um, uh, uh, putting the Bible last as 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 what is is being presented here. I'm not. I'm. I'm also not saying here that every apologist will or classical apologist will do that as well. But how do you know what God, God to argue if you're going to say? From your logic, then proceeds apologetics, and then proceeds our, our look at at the Bible. And so, um, uh, here's where other approaches, I think, um, do a better job of presenting what Christians actually do. Uh, come to a uh, more considerate worldview of of what they're actually arguing for. Uh, but that's not to say that the classical apologists have uh, nothing to offer. Uh, again, from from wherever you're at, you can still argue. The Kalam argument, and it's still fascinating. And it's great that Craig has done so much work in it, and uh, the, there's a lot to to be looked at here. And so, uh, we're 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 not we're not kicking them out of the kingdom. Uh, at least uh, I'm not. <laughs> I, I don't have that power authority. And uh, and and so uh, th there's there's a lot to be desired here, uh, but also there's uh, good things to learn and to to just discount reason and logic. Uh, I don't think anyone really wants to do that. Uh, even the, the fetus doesn't quite want to go that far, um, but uh, but it just seems here that uh, the, the two-step approach miss, misses a lot um, uh, w when it comes to uh, what Christians uh, are, are actually trying to argue, what all, what, um, what a majority of also Christians are trying to, to, to get at. And it's, it's a, a, a weird approach where we say, you know, if 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 um, if there is no neutrality, then wh why are we giving the unbeliever the the, the spot to, to be neutral? They yeah. they they're not giving you the spot to be neutral, nor are you neutral, right? right. You sure. honestly can't lay aside and say, let us reason up from our from, from our mental faculties and say, come, let us reason together. Uh, maybe there's a God. Well, hold on. How do we how do we even take uh, th that terminology to, to task where we're trying to communicate something we're trying to communicate to, to something else we're trying to reach uh, a transcendent or or uh, you know someone who once was us and so then what what form of god are you arguing to it seems like you're you're putting the cart before the horse but you're you're actually not and you're saying that you are and so uh, that seems to be a, a big uh, critique that we would have at least of, of this approach yeah yeah good all right, so the, they conclude this uh, chapter by pointing out a couple of things here. First, they say that the classical model of Christian apologetics has some significant strengths, and of course, we, we've seen some of these, right? It emphasizes the importance of logic, which is important, and the need for an interpretive framework or worldview from which, uh, uh, within which uh, facts gain meaning. And, of course, it emphasizes the value of finding common ground with non-Christians. So those are some uh, significant strengths that they suggest that this particular approach has. On the other hand, the classical approach is beset by certain potential limitations, which are often raised as objections to the entire approach. Of these, three stand out. First, the arguments used in classical apologetics tends to treat their criteria for, for testing the truth of Christianity as a neutral criteria that can be objectively and correctly employed by Christians and non-Christians alike to determine truth. 
That doesn't seem to be the case. Such neutrality would appear to be impossible. People come to the table with different ideas already formed about what is reasonable, what is factual, what is practical, what is important. You know, maybe they're just wrong about it. And so they, they don't view it as as important or as 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 logical. And so uh, it, it, it seems like all these different factors come in to to creating an in neutral uh, uh, starting place for for everybody. And again, if we take the Bible for, for what it says, it appears that neutrality is a very hard-pressed point to, to make uh, when it comes to what's uh, revealed to us in Scripture. Yeah, yeah, good. And secondly, they tell us the soundness of arguments, that is, these various uh, arguments for the existence of God, used to establish theism as a true worldview, is uh, debated, right? Not everybody accepts it. And even those... Uh, found to be sound are too abstract and complex to help most people, right? What in the world are you talking about, right? This, you know, uh, first cause, what is that? That's not the guy that I thought you were talking about. <laughs> and then thirdly, uh, classical apologetics, they tell us, tends to overlook the non-rational personal factors that affect uh, people's beliefs. So in reaction to these and other difficulties, most Christian apologists today working from essentially classical model moderate or qualify that approach. Thus, the aforementioned weaknesses do not apply to all apologists who operate within the classical tradition. On the other hand, other Christian apologists have sought to develop alternative approaches to defending the faith. And in the next section, we will consider one of the most closely related to the classical approach, and that is of evidentialism. So you'll probably see a lot of the same things that were talked about, at least in the later portion of our classical approach. And then and then we go out in left field and talk about those those crazy people <laughs> that uh, have uh, beliefs that aren't or, or uh, uh, apologetic approaches that uh, don't align with these two. Right, so, exactly. yeah, so uh, evidentialist is is where you want to go from classical approach, uh, just because the two are very closely related and uh, uh, treads familiar territory, but uh, it's not a one-to-one -one, uh, uh, correlation at all. And again, I, I, I highly, highly uh, um, recommend the five views of Christian apologetics from Zondervan um, that really, really illustrate um, the, 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 the dialogue, um, or uh, I guess it'd be the Quantrologue, but the the the, the, the different uh, the, yeah the different the different approaches here. Although yeah. they don't really talk to each other, they write to each other, which is right. actually right. really really interesting for for um, uh, discerning a little bit more truth from from uh, a debate uh, process, which is really interesting. Um, so yeah, we'll 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 talk about that later. All right. So uh, until next time, we'll, we'll see you then. Yeah, so the next uh, episodes uh, that you might encounter uh, will, uh, will probably be one or two, maybe uh, from the evidential uh, ones. And then we get towards the end of the year, uh, if you're watching this uh, in the present, which is our future, and then you might be looking at this past. So here we're hitting the B theory of time, I think. Um, and, and so uh, what I tend to do uh, to give us uh, some breathing room around the holidays is uh, I, I just uh, uh, do uh, the reviews that uh, of the books that I've read for the year. Uh, I, I, I've, I've tried for 52 this year. And so depending on where I'm at, uh, you'll either get 52 or less than that. And so uh, th those will kind of be uh, uh, the, the episodes towards the end of the year and then uh, from wherever th that happens, uh, once we decide, uh, then we'll 
back up at the first of the year uh, by looking more at our evidential approach. But we still might uh, cover some episodes here from Our Faith Has Its Reasons by uh, Kenneth Boa and Robert uh, M. Bowman Jr. that you should definitely pick up and read along with us. So uh, we thank you for joining us and hopefully you found this valuable. Tell us what you think about classical approach. What, what do you think its strengths are? What do you think its weaknesses are? Uh, and and uh, um, let's uh, let's talk about it in the crazy YouTube comments that uh, that's always fun to, uh, to 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 wake up to and figure out uh, what I'm going to argue about uh, for for that day. But uh, as always, we thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.